2: Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm Sarah Ellis, and this week we're continuing with our Being Your Brilliant Best Self series. And you're going to hear two interviews with amazing guests. First, you'll hear me talk to author and researcher Jim Collins, and then the founder and CEO of Starling Bank, Anne Bowden. Before I introduce today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that our TED Talk is going ahead on the 6th of February which is great news and we really do appreciate everybody who's already supported us by buying a ticket to join the virtual event. If you do come along, you get the opportunity to hear from 14 different speakers and the TED team have done an incredible job of creating this brilliant virtual experience that I'm really excited about being part of. There are theoretical physicists that you can hear from, human right barristers, climate activists, psychologists, poets, drag queens and us. I feel like we are the least interesting in that list there, but it's going to be incredible. We had our rehearsal yesterday, and I can really promise that it will be insightful and really inspiring. So I really hope we can see some of you there. The team have worked incredibly hard to still make this happen virtually. So the more people we can get there, I think just the better I feel for everyone who's worked so hard to kind of make this happen. So on to today's episode. First up, you're going to hear me talk to author and researcher Jim Collins. I've been learning from and influenced by Jim's ideas and insights for what feels like my whole career. One of his books is called Good to Great. And I really remember reading that and reflecting on how I led my kind of leadership style, what it meant to be a brilliant leader. And then things like his book Beyond Entrepreneurship, which I think is a Bible for anyone starting out in their own business. He has a concept called the flywheel which you'll hear us talk about in today's episode and our business model for Amazing If is kind of based on this idea of a flywheel and so far so good it seems to be kind of working out okay for us. Jim approaches his interviews in a way that I think reflects his work. Deeply thoughtful, considered and curious. I was incredibly impressed by how much time, effort and energy he invested into preparing for uh, and then the kind of conversation that we had together. And so as a result, the conversation you're going to hear today is slightly longer than our usual podcast episodes, so you might need to take two walks to listen to it, or spread it over a couple of days, as I appreciate people have got a lot going on right now. But we really wanted you to benefit from as much of Jim's wisdom as possible, so I hope a slightly longer episode works okay. So I hope you enjoy the first part of this podcast, and I'll be back shortly to introduce Anne. (laughs) Jim, thank you so much for joining us today on the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm really excited about our conversation.
3: I have really been looking forward to it ever since I heard your voice in my ears from this marvellous podcast the two of you have created. Oh, thank
2: you. That's really kind. I actually want to start by exploring this idea of what it is to be an entrepreneur Because these are people that you have spent lots of time with. You've kind of dedicated your life to really what does it take to start businesses, to grow and sustain successful businesses. For me, I don't think I would ever have thought of myself as an entrepreneur. It's probably not a word that would have sat well with me. I would have thought, oh, you know, I don't fit the mold. I don't look right. Maybe I don't have the right skills. But actually having spent time again with your work and kind of rereading some of it and absorbing some of your new work, I have started to perhaps reframe or reevaluate, like what does it mean to kind of be a successful entrepreneur? So I wondered if that's where we could start with when we think about a successful entrepreneur, what does it take to be one? What do those people look and feel like?
3: So I appreciate actually starting with this question because I took your question. It was a great question. You were so kind to send it to me ahead of time. I sat down and I thought, I'm going to go through my work and I'm going to say, all right, what do I see from our research are the top five characteristics of the entrepreneurs who start companies and then turn them into great companies or at least really get the flywheel going. So I'm going to tick through these for you. Here we go. Number one, relatively early, if not right at the start, they make the shift from thinking about what to do to thinking about who to do it with. They make the shift from first what to first who, this notion of not only the first the right people on the bus and then where to drive it, but even thinking about who I really want to do this with. And I was really struck, Sarah, in our conversation, you were talking about you and Helen working together, that in many ways, you know, the ultimate idea for Amazing If is each other. It's like we're going to figure out the what's as we go along. And we have some ideas, but we're going to have to revise those as we learn, as we figure out what works, what doesn't work. We didn't know a pandemic was coming. We're going to be making adjustments. But, you know, the ultimate starting point was the who. Uh, When I look at the really greatest entrepreneurs, they very early unwed themselves from love of an idea and wed themselves to the idea of, I want to work with people I love and respect, and can count on, and can trust, right? So, that's number one. They shift early from a what orientation to a who orientation. Number two, they fire bullets, then cannonballs. And when I look at how people figure out the entrepreneurial path, so first of all, let's just be really clear. The probabilities that any specific idea are going to work are close to zero. But the probabilities a company will work are very high, if you're willing to keep iterating till you find the idea that works. So we found this thing, Morton Hansen, my dear colleague and friend on Great By Choice, we studied some of the greatest entrepreneurs that went on to build companies that from startup became 10 times better than their industries. And one of their things they did was fire bullets and cannonballs. So imagine you have a ship bearing down on you, which would be like the end of your enterprise if the ship got you, right? You have a certain amount of gunpowder. Now, one approach would be, I'm going to take all the gunpowder, I'm going to put it in a big cannonball and I'm gonna fire it at that ship and hope it hits, but it doesn't, it splashes in the water and you turn and you look back and you're out of gunpowder and here comes the ship and you're in trouble. But what if instead, you took a little bit of gunpowder, put it in a bullet, and you fire at that ship, and it misses, but you see it's only 30 degrees off, so you recalibrate, you fire another one, now you're only 10 degrees off, then you fire a third one, recalibrated. ping, and you hear the side of the ship. Now, now I'm gonna take the gunpowder. Now I'm going to put it in a big cannonball and fire it on a calibrated line of sight. The great entrepreneurs are not big risk takers. They bound their risk. And part of the way they do it is they bound their risk by firing their bullets before they fire the cannonball. And then when the time comes, they fire the cannonball. Number three, they have fanatic discipline. These people aren't just disciplined, they're fanatic in their discipline. You're very disciplined in your preparation and how you organize yourselves, how you manage your time, a whole series of things. But there's an ultimate form of discipline, and that is the discipline to stay true to the actual founding values that you want to live to. When we were talking earlier, I was struck by the idea that. You want to come back over and over again to we're in service to our listeners, to people. We want to affect their careers. We want to help them. And there are lots of things that could take us away from that. We will say no to those. That's discipline. And the great entrepreneurs understand that values are not soft. Values are hard. And discipline means adherence to those values. Number four, they create a customer and convert it into a flywheel. So, if you really look at the greatest entrepreneurs, maybe they create a customer because the bullet hits and they, they convert that to a cannonball and they got customers. But ultimately, what happens is you think about any truly great company as it gets built. It's like turning a giant heavy flywheel. You know, you start pushing in a given direction, and after a lot of effort, you get one giant slow creaky turn, and then you get two turns, and four, and eight, and sixteen, and thirty-two, and a hundred, and a thousand, and a million. And that flywheel just begins to build more and more momentum. And if somebody were to come back and say, so what was the one push that made it go? What was the one idea? What was the one aha? What was the one big breakthrough? But what would happen is, you'd actually, it's a whole bunch of things that added up over time that created compounding momentum. It's the flywheel effect. And this is especially true for entrepreneurs because you have to figure out okay, I got to create a customer, but in the end, I got to figure out how creating that customer produces a flywheel. There is this monograph called Turning the Flywheel. You and I were, were talking about it earlier, which is only 36 pages long. But it starts with, with how uh, Jeff Bezos took the flywheel concept from good to great, applied it to a very young and struggling Amazon in the wake of the dot-com boom, and asked the question, what is our flywheel? And then turned that flywheel from there to today, of course, what is Amazon? Number five, they practice productive paranoia. This notion of sure, there is a roller coaster effect of being an entrepreneur, but there's also a roller coaster effect of being inside a company. And as one of my mentors, Irv Grossbeck, always used to say, yes, there are risks to entrepreneuring, but there are also risks to not entrepreneuring, political risks. Or what if the company you're working for goes through a massive downsizing and you delivered great performance, but they just blew it, right? And then you're exposed, right? So there's risks there too. One of the differences with going out on your own not only is it a roller coaster, but it's a roller coaster that you can hit the bottom and then go right through and hit the ground, right, bang, right, over, Ball game. And so what we found with the very, very best ones is they're always worried, always worried. I mean, they never stop worrying. They see the black cloud in every silver lining. They predict 11 of the last three recessions. And as a result, they're actually financially very conservative, Again, this notion that you think that entrepreneurs are risk-takers. This is, for the best ones, this is not true. They take calibrated risks and they protect their flanks. And they're always assuming something's going to go wrong. Who would have predicted the pandemic? Yet here we are. And if you're financially exposed, if you haven't left yourself, if you've leveraged yourself too much, if you've left yourself so you have no bandwidth or no buffers, that's when you hit the death line in some form. That's when you lose all control. And so the best ones we found is they're always asking, what if, what if, what if, what if? And the key thing is this, is as you begin to generate fuel in the business, always be putting some reserves away. Uh, We found that the best companies early in their history begin carrying three to ten times the cash to assets ratio of the less successful companies. doesn't mean they have three to 10 times the amount of cash, because it could be a small company, but the cash to assets ratio, and they shun losing control of their financial destiny. So those are the five that I would give you.
2: There's often things that I just really I underline and I keep coming back to. And you do say about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs generally that it is all about cultivating your own style. Don't try to be someone you're not or to take on a style that doesn't fit. And I think that's such an important reminder for people that just listening to you there describe those characteristics of, you know, entrepreneurs who have grown and sustained really successful businesses, you don't have to look or feel a certain way that people can come from all walks of life with lots of different experiences. And then those things you described are things that we can, if it's something that you're motivated by, that it's something that you want to do, I'm really confident that lots of people, doesn't matter what you've done before or what career you've had to date, that that it feels like it's possible for a really wide range of people. You don't have to look and feel like perhaps the entrepreneurs that we see so often, maybe on TV or in magazines.
3: In fact, I mean, I've had the great privilege to study and also in some cases to get to know truly some of the greatest entrepreneurs and founders and company builders in all of corporate history, all of corporate history. And what you find is the range of styles is like the range of styles in music or the range in styles in painting or the range in styles in architecture. I mean, there's a range of styles, range of personalities. Some, like Wendy Kopp, one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time, founded Teach for America, now Teach for All, very quiet, very reserved, very, very much really good at sort of figuring out how to lead an entire community to leadership – It's a very different style than, say, someone like Steve Jobs, who was also one of the great entrepreneurs, right? Very different style. So the key is, what's your style? And what is your style? These ideas, the who, the bullets and cannonballs, the discipline, the flywheel, build all that. That's nothing about your personality.
2: Yeah, and I think that's so interesting. You talk a bit about this idea of foxes know many things, but hedgehogs are good at kind of knowing one big thing. And I couldn't resist asking about it because I was thinking, I'm personally a bit of a jack of all trades, and I do think that perhaps when you start a company, you do have to wear lots of hats. You know, we we know that's always true when you're kind of first starting, and so I wanted to just explore and understand this idea a little bit more for people because I think it's really helpful to firstly understand the difference, and then there's also those brilliant kind of hedgehog principles that. I think probably that's the kind of things that I found really useful, really thinking about, could I be an entrepreneur? Could this be something that I could do? And once I started to really understand this idea of the hedgehog, I was like, oh, okay, maybe it's okay that I am a bit of a jack of all trades. Maybe I'll make it. So perhaps you could just explain the idea for our listeners, because I would imagine lots of people will be coming across it for the first time in our conversation today.
3: Yeah. I'd like to address this on two levels. The first is the company, the entrepreneur, the organization, the the business you're building. And the other is your own personal hedgehog, okay? Because I think the personal hedgehog is one of the most powerful career and life lenses. So first of all, the hedgehog and the fox. So when we were doing the research for good to great, one of the things that we found, um, we were systematically studying companies that made a leap from good to great in contrast to others that didn't, was that at this pivot point of inflection, they got clear on what we came to call a hedgehog concept, which is they got clear on a really big thing that they could channel people's energies into. And I kept thinking about how they simplified the world down to a big idea, like, you know, we're going to have the best, most convenient drugstore steadily increasing profit per customer visit. Very simple idea when you think about it. We're going to have the best, high-spirit, low-cost airline steadily increasing profit per aircraft, right? You know, really simple idea. And I was struck by the simplicity once they got it. And then read that marvelous essay by Isaiah Berlin called The Hedgehog and the Fox, where he says there's basically two kinds of thinkers. they are hedgehogs and they are foxes. The hedgehog knows one big thing, and the the fox knows many things. So first of all, I want to be really clear, and I go back to your interview with David Epstein, I believe, is his name around the hedgehog and the Mm -hmm. fox. I want to be really clear that there's no sense that hedgehogs are always better or foxes are always better. And in fact, all of us have a little bit of hedgehog and a little bit of fox within us. And in fact, you may be somebody who really has to be somewhat fox-like to understand your hedgehog area. If you're trying to understand the biology and physiology of human behavior, you need to be a fox about all the elements of it from how synapses fire up to how evolution works to understand the big thing of how behavior happens, right? So the truth is, there's always a little bit of both. But we tend to tilt. Some of us are hedgehogs, some of us are more fox-like. Here's the key. For an organization, you need to have a way to channel people's energies. And that's why having a simple thing to focus on that's born of deep understanding is great at an organizational level, even if a number of the people in that organization are foxes. That's the hedgehog concept for a company. Now, here's the other key thing. Now, we're going to talk about the company one and think about this as an entrepreneur, and then we're going to turn this into thinking about it the individual. So everybody listen. This is really key about the hedgehog concept. The hedgehog concept is the intersection of three circles, it's doing things that you're deeply passionate about, that's one circle. What you can be the best in the world at, that's the second circle. And what drives your economic engine, that's the third circle. And I want to be really clear here that what as our companies became more hedgehog, what happened is through bullets and cannonballs, through empirical experience, through dialogue and debate, they got more and more clear about which things they do meet all three tests. We're passionate about this. We can be the best in the world at it, and we, it drives our economic engine. And as things would fail one of those tests, that would drop off the radar. And being it more of the hedgehog as a company is we do more of what fits those three circles. We're going to do more of what's passion best at economics, less of anything that doesn't meet those tests. And as we begin to do that, right, we begin to make decisions that do that, that's how you begin to build the flywheel momentum. Ah, we really love this, we're really good at it, it makes economic sense, we'll do more of it, the flywheel turns. And over time, you may discover, because you fire bullets on things that are new, they hit, you turn them into a cannonball, it expands what's in those three circles. But the hedgehog part of it is, We stay in the three circles. Even though we're going to discover new things that meet all three tests, we're going to stay in the three tests. Are we passionate about it? Can we be the best in the world at it? And does it drive our economic engine? And Sarah, you and I are talking about as you're building Amazing If, you're discovering new things all the time. Does that mean you're a fox? No. Being the hedgehog means, but we're going to really focus on the ones that meet all three tests. And then you get the flywheel momentum. That's what the hedgehog concept is all about. Uh, can we maybe spend a minute on individuals?
2: Yes, yeah, absolutely.
3: Okay, so one of the things that's wonderful about your uh, your whole approach, the notion of squiggly careers. And someday we're going to have another conversation because I'm doing new research now, about five years into it, to ask a very simple question that I've wanted to answer for my whole life, which is the question of individual self-renewal. Why do some people remain Remarkably well-renewed over the long arc of a life. And I've got a great method for it, and I'm about five years into it. But here's the interesting thing. One pattern of renewal, it's not the only pattern, but one pattern of renewal is people find a personal hedgehog theme for their life relatively early. And then their life is perhaps a squiggly, but nonetheless, the squiggly is variations on that hedgehog theme for their life over an entire arc. So Beethoven continues to write symphonies, but they're different symphonies, variations on a theme, right? And so what's the personal version of the hedgehog that might show up? And here's the thing I would say, Sarah, is that you and Helen probably had the hedgehog. You didn't give up and change hedgehogs when you went from working for companies to doing your own thing. You simply have a new variation on a theme that's very deep inside you. So what is that personal theme? So everybody that's in your world right now will think about these three circles for yourself. What is your hedgehog? First, it's circle one, what are you passionate about and love to do? And if you're not passionate about it and you don't love to do it, it's just simply remind you you have one life, and it's short. Number two, second circle is not what can you be the best in the world at because very few of us get that opportunity. The second circle is what are you genetically encoded for? What are the things that when you do them, you just sort of feel like, it's not that you're good at it, it's that you're made for it. And I personally resonate with this because I was a kid that was really good at math. So I thought I was going to be a mathematician. I went off to college and I studied mathematical sciences. That was my undergraduate degree. But while I was there, I met the people who are encoded for math. They're a different species than me. I did well. But man, my brain wasn't like theirs, and I knew it. So I had to discover what I am encoded for. And then the third circle is someone will pay you to do it, or you can generate an economic engine to do it, to pursue your goals. Now imagine you woke up every day and you said, I'm passionate about this, and some days are better than others, but overall I love this. The second is I'm encoded for this. Like I really feel like I'm kind of, something maybe the only thing I'm made for it, but this is something I'm made for it. And the third is, I can make a living at it. I can fund my goals. I can actually generate cash flow. I can make the flywheel turn. Well, then you have found a hedgehog. And that one of the great tasks in life is to find something that meets those three circles, and then your life can unfold from there. You may change careers. That's fine. But will that change in career be closer to your hedgehog, which is what it should be?
2: And actually, that leads us really nicely onto this idea of how you spend your time, which I think one of the things that when we talk to our listeners, when we do workshops, that people are always struggling with is too much work, feeling overloaded, feeling overwhelmed and not being able to kind of find their way through what needs to get done. And you articulate this brilliant question in Beyond Entrepreneurship where you say, It's not about asking what am I going to do, but asking how am I going to spend my time? What else have you come across in your work and through your own experiences that just helps people to focus their efforts and their kind of time in the right places? Because I just feel like for everyone, that's something that we're all continually trying to find our way through.
3: So you are right about that line. There's a, I mean, you want to give credit to a fellow named Kenneth Atchides, who years ago when Bill and I were first composing the original edition of Beyond Entrepreneurship, came across this wonderful thing where he made this interesting comment or observation, you know, work is infinite and time is finite. So therefore, managing work is a recipe for distress, so you have to manage your time, not your work. And that really struck me, and then I started thinking it through, and I think about, think about this. Everybody who could be listening, think about it. If I were to say to you, I'm going to magically grant you another 24 hours in each day, would you still get everything done? I'm going to magically grant you 72 hours in each day. You still wouldn't get everything done. The amount of things that we could be doing just goes up and up and up and up. So therefore, the really critical thing is to recognize that the thing to manage is the time, not the work. And I have found, I may want to share, I know know that you and your listeners really like to benefit from some specifics that are helpful. And I'm not a time management expert, but I have drawn from people I've researched and just some of my own experience. And I want to share a few of the things that I think are helpful. One is something that I came across in a research in the building of Intel. Andy Grove, one of the great chief executives, had a very interesting comment, which is, never let go of your calendar. Don't let other people put things on your calendar. You might think it's efficient to delegate that people can put things on your calendar. You have basically then just delegated the single most precious asset you have, which is your time and how it's used. Never let go of your calendar. Don't let other people schedule your calendar for you. Number two, set your 20-mile march. I found this to be really helpful. Very brief story. When I was leaving Stanford and I and I was launching out on my own, and I uh, was no longer gonna be in the organization structure of a university. I found myself thinking, you know, I really need to think about how best to use my time, right, going back to this question. And I was very clear I wanted to remain true to the research, doing new work. I didn't want to just have one book. I wanted to have new ideas and thoughts and the flywheel and all these things that would come later. I wanted to ultimately do research that would lead to them. So how do I stay true to that when there's going to be all these other demands on me? So I asked a bunch of friends of mine in the university, how does an outstanding professor use his or her time. The answer I got back was 50-30-20. 50% in new creative work, 30% in teaching, 20% in other stuff that just has to get done. I said, sounds good. So I bought a three-category stopwatch, and I literally would go through the day switching on these three different parts of the stopwatch and totaling it all in a spreadsheet at the end of every day to see if I could stay close to 50-30-20. That became cumbersome. Then in Great By Choice, Morton Hansen and I had this insight that emerged from our research called the 20-mile march, which is this thing that you hit with a single metric, you hit with great consistency, like I'm going to walk across the United States by doing 20 miles a day no matter what, whatever it happens to be, and we called it the 20-mile march. I said, I can simplify this down to 1,000 creative hours a year. So every single day at the end of the day, I open a spreadsheet, every day. And I write in one cell what happened that day. I write in another cell how the day felt from plus 2, plus 1, 0, minus 1, minus 2 to kind of do what I call happiness correlations to figure out what really does correlate with happy days and unhappy days. But the third is I put in the number of creative hours I got that day. And then the spreadsheet calculates back last 365 days and gives me a running total. And my rule is really simple. I have to stay above 1,000 creative hours every 365-day cycle every single day of every single year for 50 years. And by having that one metric, now there may be a day where I get zero, there might be a day when I get eight, but the net total, and I'm tracking it all the time, I know the one big metric of where my time goes. And I make sure I stay on it no matter what. So each of you would be thinking, "What's my twenty mile march?" It might not be creative hours. It might be time with building my teams. It might be time on R and D stuff. It might be what's the one big thing that where your time should be like? This is the thing that you should get a thousand hours a year, every three hundred sixty five days. I call measure it every single day and calculate the three sixty five back. Number three, put white space on your calendar, block out time on your calendar, and you two have talked a lot about this where. It's just white space. There's nothing on it, and you can do this marvelous thing called thinking. Number four, one thing that's really useful whether you're in a company or whether you're building your own is I like to think in terms of your annual sets of threes, right? And you grade yourself at the end of the year. So you write down your top three things that you have to, you really wanna get done for the year. No more than three. If it's only one or two, that's fine, right? Because it might only be only one or two, but no more than three. Number two, though, like a balance sheet, the top three things you're going to stop doing. Third is top three fun in life. Because you see, if, when you go out on your own, because work is infinite and time is finite, if you don't actually make some fun and life objectives, they will get run over and destroyed by the amount of work. And then finally, I like to think of top three things to resolve. You did this wonderful thing on, uh, I think it was in your productivity tips. I can't remember which podcast it was, but you talked about the importance of actually one of the things that should be on your list are not to-dos, they're to things That's absolutely right because you have to have this sense of like, okay, by the end of this year, I've got three things I need to resolve. They're not to-do, they're to get clear on. And so if you do that, but here's the key. At the end of the year, you grade yourself relative to exactly what you set out in the first week of January. And you do it every single year. Every single year. Every single year, nonstop. Now I guess I would offer one last practical thing, is a little story, it ties into the deadlines. The deadlines, we talked about that earlier. Deadlines stimulate progress, they provide freedom in a framework, and so forth. I call it Cultivate Your Inner Teddy. So what is Cultivate Your Inner Teddy? Teddy Roosevelt, one of our presidents, used to really love to have freedom of how he used his time. And he, when he was president, he agreed to give a talk, I think at Oxford, and he was going to be taking a year off to go on like a safari after being president. So the question is, when did Teddy Roosevelt prepare his talk for Oxford? He prepared it before he left the presidency a year in advance. And then he went off on his safari. And what Roosevelt did, one of the ways that he managed himself was whenever he had a deadline, I have a talk, I have to give at Oxford on a certain date, even if it's a year off, always get ahead. Always get ahead because that then gives you freedom in how you bet. If you know that you use your time best at a certain time of day to do certain types of work, if you wait until you're up against the deadline, then you may actually have to exchange some of your best hours that could be spent on something else to do that because the deadline is tomorrow. Whereas if before you'd said, I manage my time with these pockets of time best for preparation, these pockets of time are best for writing, these pockets of time are best for meeting with people, and if you're always ahead, always ahead, you're cultivating your inner Teddy, then you have freedom of choice about when you use your best hours for these specific types of activities. And one of the things I found with the best folks that I've studied is they know which hours in the day are best for certain kinds of tasks for them to be the most effective? You run up against the deadline, you use your, lose your freedom to do that.
2: Like I have to ask because I think just listening to you there, I I was reflecting on, yeah, I think everyone listening would be nodding their heads. They'd be like, yeah, I, that's kind of what I was doing as I was listening. And I know you can't see me, but I was like, right, OK, well, I think perhaps I do that idea in. I think I'm good at the calendar in the white space though we do have brilliant team assistant there who helps but I am very clear about how I use my time and kind of when I use it so I was like okay that's good I was thinking I don't think I've done the 20 mile march idea and I, and I, I was thinking I think for me the equivalent to that might be something like learning hours and that's often something that can fall by the wayside and I think if I was more intentional that that would really help me and I love all the kind of threes and how you review those what happens when inevitably life gets in the way or you know your boss gives you five more priorities that you hadn't expected? And I think the thing that we hear most commonly from people is that they don't feel in control. They don't feel in control of their time. They don't feel in control of the work that they do. And I do recognise that I think I sit here listening to you now feeling pretty privileged to be doing what I do and I probably do have a bit more control and being able to implement those things. And, and, you know, I am now my own boss. That is one of the advantages of, of doing your own thing. You, you go, well, I can make that choice. What advice would you give for people who are thinking, I really want to make all these things happen, but perhaps they feel it's hard in the context they're in?
3: Yeah. I have two <laughs> angles I want to take on this, and I, I really want to speak to people's suffering on this, actually, because it is suffering, and I think it's actually barbaric to rip away people's sense of being able to have freedom and how they use their time to do their best work. So the first thing I want to say is I actually want to speak to all of you out there who lead and manage people. Do not do this to your people. Again, it's that notion of, yes, you need deadlines, you need clear frameworks, you need agreed-upon objectives, all those sorts of things, but they are there so that you give people freedom so that you give people freedom so that they can manage themselves to do their best work. And we all know life intervenes. Okay, all of a sudden, some major thing happens. And it's like, we didn't expect that the pandemic hit, right? And so we're sitting here, we're going to have to build, I'm in our little studio that we built, and we're going to have to change some things to adjust our studio, et cetera. Okay, that's reality. Life hits. I mean, it's what von Clausewitz calls the fog and friction of war. That's reality. But, you know, that doesn't mean that just because reality can be brutal upon us does not mean we have to lead our people in a brutal way. And so when that happens, you recognize and you say to people, look, this huge thing, this massive rock just just dropped in the water and completely displaced a whole bunch of water. We need to think very hard about what can we do? What can we not do? And I'm going to explicitly absolve you of this deadline over here because this is all of a sudden taking a priority. But if you just drop things on people that essentially rips away their sense of control, you are doing managerial and leadership incompetence. It is unenlightened. What you always want to be doing is when people should have the freedom to manage themselves this way because the objectives and the deadlines are so clear that you can walk away and say, let me know if you need anything. So that's number one. If you're managing and leading people, lead and manage other people the way you would want to be managed. Second is, this is one of the reasons why I feel that it is in many ways less stressful to be an entrepreneur. Think about what really causes stress. You think about entrepreneurship as, oh, it's risky, and it's scary, and it's stressful. Well, there's risk and stress in all parts of life, but having no sense of control is very stressful, and when you go on your own, it's scary, but because you are making the decisions. About how you allocate yourself and your resources. In many ways, your stress goes down. And there's one other piece to this. I actually think, and I've mentioned this multiple times, most entrepreneurs are not risk takers more than others. What they have is a greater, more comfortable with ambiguity. If I work in a company, there's less ambiguity. I know I have a job, I know I have a paycheck, I know I have all these things, right? There's lower ambiguity. But your risks are still high. And your stress is still high. And your lack of being in control is still high. You go on your own, it's more ambiguous. You didn't know how you were going to put together all your clients this year when the pandemic hit. It's ambiguous. We don't know how it's going to happen. But we will figure it out. And we'll have a portfolio of clients, right? That's more ambiguous rather than a single job with a paycheck. And what I really like to challenge people to think about is Maybe when you think you're risk averse, you're really just averse to the ambiguity. But once you embrace that ambiguity, you actually might get more control.
2: And this is probably an unfair question because you have spent time with so many exceptional entrepreneurs and really interesting companies. And actually, it's always one of the things that I enjoy about all of your work is the opportunity to discover or read more about you know, some organisations you're very familiar with like Amazon and, and kind of where they have started and how they've grown and then others that are new to me and I kind of learn their stories through your work but I just wondered is there someone or a particular organisation that you just particularly feel an affiliation to or have been really inspired by as part of all of the work that you've done perhaps particularly in terms of Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0?
3: So I'd like to to highlight two aspects. Uh, highlight one person uh, that I actually wrote this about in Beyond Entrepreneurship in the 2.0, and then make a general point. About a decade ago, talking with an editor of Inc. magazine, and they were talking about you know picking their entrepreneur of the decade, and I said I got my choice, and I chose Wendy Kopp, founder of Teach for America, and because it is a tremendous entrepreneurial creation. Now it's Teach for All, and the idea that driven by this basic idea that all children everywhere should have a shot at a great education by the time they're age 18 independent of where they're born family they come from like you know this is a really huge principle and she's dedicated her life to it But the fact she started with nothing at age 22 and then created this flywheel that is now going global in its essence, I think is one of the great entrepreneurial acts. And it doesn't matter to me that it's in the social sector. It's, it's an entrepreneurial act. It's one of the greatest entrepreneurial acts. And Wendy is one of the great entrepreneurial leaders. And she's able to do it from a very, very small base. And I will write about her and her leadership style in there. And I just don't go back to If somebody pushed me into a corner and said, pick your number one. Well, I could pick Bezos or Gates or Disney or Jobs or Marriott. Of course, all these people, but I'd still go to Wendy Cobb. Then the second thing I want to say is this. There is not such a thing as an entrepreneurial type. Our research very clearly shows that there isn't like this entrepreneur who starts and then they have to be pushed out by the professional managers who can now be the real people to build the company because you it's going to outgrow you. If you look at the greatest entrepreneurs. They grew. As their company scaled from 1x to 2x, they scaled their own leadership from 1x to 2x. And as their company scaled to 10x, they scaled their leadership to 10x. And if you look at these names, you know, people like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Walt Disney or Jay Willard Marriott or Ed Catwell or Phil Knight or whoever, right? They built their companies. They didn't just start them. And what that says is never let anybody tell you that Well, just because you're the entrepreneur doesn't mean you can't be the one to also build the company. Most of our great company builders who were also the entrepreneurs were in harness for about three decades, not three years.
2: That's good news because when people keep asking me continually, oh, what's your exit plan from Amazing If? Which I do find slightly strange given how kind of young we are in, in kind of startup world. My answer to that is, oh, well, I don't plan to go anywhere. So I haven't really got one.
3: <laughs> that's, the right, that's the right answer. And imagine if somebody would have come to Walt Disney and said, you know, what's your exit plan now that you've done this Mickey Mouse thing? Or you know, had, had gone to Jeff Bezos and said, well, you've done, you know, the bookstore thing. What's your exit plan? That's the flywheel. The flywheel, the ultimate power on the flywheel isn't that you do zero to 20 and then start over again. It's that you go from 20 to 2,000 to 200,000 to 2 billion. I'm not talking dollars, I'm talking momentum. That's the flywheel.
2: And this is probably, or well, I'm pretty sure definitely, an impossible task. But we do always ask every guest this question. So I feel like we should end asking you to share a best piece of career advice with our listeners which can be your own advice it can be advice from mentors or people who you've met who've shared something with you that's kind of really stuck and it's less about being kind of the ultimate piece of advice but just something I think really that you found useful that you'd like to share with everyone listening today.
3: Yeah so when young people come to me often seeking career advice I like to tell them two short stories. The first is the story of Anne Mulcahy, who was one of the great chief executives of the last 50 years who saved Xerox. When Ann Mulcahy was leading her parts of her company and Xerox ended up in great difficulty and was on the verge of basically capitulation to irrelevance, and a board member said, instead of going for an outside savior CEO, who in this company will people trust? Who in this company will people trust that that leader would make the best decisions They would really believe in that person's integrity and capabilities. And one name came to the fore, which was Anne Mulcahy. She never thought to be CEO. She wasn't angling for it. She wasn't career planning for it. Every minibus she got, she turned it into a sparkling pocket of greatness, and she really took care of the culture and of her people. She paid attention to what was right in front of her. And by making everything she touched the best it could possibly be, the buses just got bigger and bigger, and one day they asked her to save the company. The second story, and then I'll put it all together in a point, is General Lloyd Austin, who has graduated West Point in 1975, became a four-star general officer, ended up his last post as commander of CENTCOM, which was responsible for all military forces, Syria to Pakistan, and is now President-elect Biden's nominee for Secretary of Defense. Quite a career. And General Austin and I became very good friends. And at one point, we were talking about career advice. And he said, you know, I had this really interesting experience early in my career, a few years out of West Point. I began wondering, how's my career going? Am I progressing fast enough? How are my promotions? Am I, how am I doing relative to others? And one day, I woke up and I said to myself, I'm going to stop doing that. I made a deliberate decision that I would no longer take care of my career. I would take care of my people. And everything changed. They would not let me fail. And I take those two stories, and what I like to say to young people is take care of your people, not your career. Every minibus you get, every responsibility you get, make it a pocket of greatness and take care of the people on your bus. And if you do that, you are more likely to die from having indigestion of too much opportunity for responsibility than starvation for too little.
2: I suspect that's very good advice, not only for young people but for everyone working. <laughs> I think that's pretty universally applicable for all of us to bear both of those things in mind and I love the idea it's such an evocative story. I now can't help but think about sparkly minibuses i've just got <laughs> I've just got ideas in my mind of people making these buses absolutely the brilliant, best sparkly, shiny things that they can be, which is really nice so Jim, I just wanted to say that. It has been a real privilege and a pleasure to talk to you today. Your work has influenced me and my career for 10, 15 years now. And certainly if you'd have told me when I first came across the flywheel that we would have had the opportunity to have this conversation that would have been my hedgehog dream come true. So I do really, I really appreciate your time and your insights. And I know that our listeners will have learned an awful lot from our conversation today. So I just wanted to say a really big thank you.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a great joy to get to know you. And I want to applaud the spirit the two of you bring to what you're doing for others and all the people who benefit from what you do. So it's a privilege to be part of it. And we'll just get more clicks on the flywheel.
2: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jim and if you are discovering his work for the first time or you've got any questions about what we talked about please do get in touch with me I could talk about Jim's work a lot and it's something that I would have a lot of fun doing you can direct message me on Instagram where we're just at amazing if so if you want to know which book to start with or if you want to know a bit more about any of the concepts I probably can't do quite a good a job as Jim would do but I will do my best to kind of navigate you to things that might be useful we thought that as well as discussing entrepreneurship, it would be useful to hear from someone who is living and breathing that reality day to day. Anne Bowden is the founder of a bank called Starling, and they're a UK mobile bank. She isn't, I don't think, your stereotypical entrepreneur, which is one of the reasons that I was so keen to talk to her. And we'll discuss kind of why not and what that means. What I really enjoyed about talking to Anne is she is straight talking and honest and funny. So hopefully it's a kind of uplifting and interesting conversation. She was actually awarded an MBE for services to financial technology in 2018, which is probably just a kind of small slice of showing just what an impact she has had on kind of that industry as a kind of challenger. I think she's probably a challenger entrepreneur and she's created a challenger bank. And her book Banking on It is a really fascinating read. I don't want to give you any spoilers, but if you quite like a business book full of drama, which is not necessarily how you describe most business books. That is definitely banking on it because it is such a roller coaster ride. And actually just the relationship between her and then things like Monzo, the bank that some of you will know, and how that came from Starling and that relationship. And like I said, I don't want to say too much, but yeah, it was a it was a real roller coaster ride to read. So if you're looking for something that's a bit different, maybe to your average business book, maybe check that out. But for now, I hope you enjoy my conversation. I'll be back at the end to let you know what's happening next week. So Anne, thank you so much for joining us today on the Squiggly Careers podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Sarah. It's a pleasure. I'm going to actually start having read your book, which I have to say was a real roller coaster at times and gave me so many fascinating insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm going to start with something you actually say at the very end of your book. And you said, female bosses suffer from boiled egg syndrome. And then you go on to say were either too hard or too soft, but never quite right. And actually, throughout the book, when I was reading, it was really clear, certainly to me, and I think you you mentioned it a few times, that perhaps when you were starting out into kind of the world of fintech, you perhaps didn't fit the mould of the, you know, hipster lookalike that lots of people who were kind of in that world look and feel like. I mean, certainly there's not many female fintech entrepreneurs anyway. And actually even women running their own businesses who are getting investment, those numbers continue to be really low. And so I was really interested to start today's conversation with just what has helped you to have the self-confidence and belief in what you were building, just given you wouldn't have had, and probably still don't have, lots of examples around you to learn from or learn with. Yes, that phrase.
0: The bald egg syndrome, you know, never quite right. It's something I picked up in my corporate life, actually, yeah. in that women are very harshly assessed. Women have to achieve a, a higher bar to get promoted and get to the next level. And they're always criticized for being too soft or too hard and too aggressive. And my advice to lots of women in business and in corporate life is not to be too sensitive to that criticism because you always get it. What I'd like really to talk about perhaps next is the fact that yes, I've been been in finance all my life, I've been in technology all my life, and now an entrepreneur. Very, very few women in each of those categories, but it is what it is. You have to get on with it, you have to be resilient, and you have to enjoy
2: all the breaks you get. There's one of the chapters in your book, which I think is is literally just called Get On With It. And it talks about the importance of you have just got to do stuff. You've got to start testing. That's how you make progress. You've got to put stuff out there. And that's, you know, that's a sentiment that we hear a lot when we talk about kind of starting at businesses. But it is an incredible challenge within banking just because of the amount of regulation that that industry has. And so there's, there's an awful lot that kind of has to be done before you can kind of release anything, into that wider world so did you find ways of trying to kind of test the idea with customers or with potential customers before it was kind of released to everyone i guess because otherwise it's such a significant risk isn't it in terms of the amount of people time and money that goes into certainly getting into your bank into the world? Yes, yes.
0: We spend a lot of time testing our ideas. We spent a lot of time talking to customers about how they use money and how they save and how they go on holidays and try to get insight. But nothing's as powerful as actually launching your product and seeing how people use it. That is the most important thing. Doing plans and coming up with concepts. It's not as good as actually trying that idea. It's a bit of a difficulty with a bank because you have to have a banking license before you can actually start testing things. But it's so important, you know, to get out of the bedroom where you're planning things and actually do <laughs> stuff. Go and talk to real customers, go and talk to people who are likely to use your product. And as soon as you have something, go out there and get a real customer to use it. It is the greatest feedback you can ever have. Lots of people will tell you things about your product and those people don't necessarily know anything. Some of the advice I have for people is to be very careful when taking advice. Lots of people will offer you advice without a real any credentials to give you that advice. So good idea to ask lots of people and ask around, get lots of feedback and it's nothing like real customers to give you that feedback.
2: What helped you and still helps you to stay optimistic on the very bad days or when things aren't going the way that you'd hoped?
0: There are lots of ups and downs in in my story, my entrepreneurship story. And in Banking On It, I describe losing my entire team, Mm. um, flying to the Bahamas, raising 48 million, coming back with enough money to start a bank and then having many other ups and downs during the process. But there were some really, really days when I thought it was it was almost over. And yes, it was almost over. I said on one occasion, I resigned. So, yeah, I've had horrible days. But I think if you can survive for the following day, you realise that things get a bit better. And it's all about resilience. It's all about not giving up. It's all about realising that things can get better if you keep plugging away. And I kept plugging away. And I managed to rebuild the organization from the ground up again. I think those near-death experiences with a business are the days that actually give you the resolve for the next time it happens. So when I have tough times now, I think about February 2015 and think I survived and I can survive again. I think if you survive those really, really difficult times, it does give you energy. It does give you resolve. It builds on your optimism. I'm very optimistic. I'm really excited about starting in the future. And who'd have thought we now have 2 million customers. We have a billion and a half of lending, 4 billion of deposits, and we're growing very, very fast. And we just hit profitability. So things are very, very good at the moment. But that's because there were dark days and I used those dark days in order to build the resolve to drive a, a successful business.
2: And I'm interested, actually, in, in how you think about success, both for yourself personally, when you're thinking about career success and also for Starling. Are your success metrics kind of very linked to you know some of those numbers that you just described to me? Or are there kind of other things that you kind of personally that are really important to you?
0: I think success for me is really having a huge amount of pleasure in what we do. Every time I receive an email from a customer that we've really helped, every time I realize that we are we are influencing something, something we've said or something we've tweeted or something I've managed to say in the press that has changed something for good, that's great. Having impact, having influence as an organization is a measure of our success. You know, Starling started up as a, me and my own were then a small group of people and we get bigger and bigger. And now we're a big organization and we're taking on the biggest banks in the world. But the excitement comes when we can change things. We can influence not just our own customers' lives, but other banks' customers' financial affairs because they start copying what we are doing. And that's good. For many, many years, customers had a rough deal. And with banks such as Starling, customers are now getting a fairer deal. If we can shake up the market and make everybody more responsive, that's good. So yeah, I like the numbers. I like it when we achieve our targets. But I also like having a voice and Starling having a voice and being able to change things for the better.
2: And how you're now talking to me and Starling is you're not that clucky startup that you were previously where you were having to do five jobs at once. You have got lots of people, as you talked about, you do have an incredible amount of influence and impact now and responsibility. Being a bank of any kind is a big responsibility. And you share in the book that your permission to make mistakes, I guess, and to try things out and that can go wrong and probably in the early days you can say oh you know we're still learning we're still growing and perhaps you get more forgiveness that changes that changes as you grow and as your relationship with your customers grows but how do you balance that with then not wanting to fall into the trap of kind of ultimately then becoming one of those things that you really don't want to be which is one of those big organizations with lots of structure and systems that then slow you down and get in your way and I I got a real sense that you are you're really desperate to not be that and to not become that. So how are you thinking about that now so that you can kind of keep some of the goodness that I guess comes with being small and being able to make decisions kind of quickly and easily?
0: Well, we've always been a bank. So we have a banking license and the bar for having a retail banking license is very high because up to £85,000 in the account is guaranteed by the financial service compensation scheme. So we've always had to have very rigorous processes. But I think that the most important thing for us as the leadership team in Starling is the organisation as a heart. And our customer service people still feel for people who are from all walks of life, that have all sorts of great money stories and horrible experiences of money, And when we treat customers just as numbers and we don't feel real sorrow when things go wrong for customers, I think then we've lost our heart. So I really believe in an organisation that listens, Mm. that owns a problem, keeps things simple and aims for greatness. That is
2: what Starling's all about. And I'm interested to know from you whether you think there is a type of person makes for a successful entrepreneur whether there are specific skills that you feel are really must have in your opinion or whether perhaps lots of different people can be successful entrepreneurs and it's more about kind of doing it in your own way because so often we hear from entrepreneurs who perhaps have always been entrepreneurs you know can never imagine having worked for someone or kind of within big organizations but you know you have the advantage of experiences and jobs in lots of different places, working with lots of different people. So I'm just wondering now, with the kind of the benefit of that experience, what your view is on successful entrepreneurship generally? Well,
0: when investors and advisors looked at me, they didn't see an entrepreneur. They thought I had very, I didn't have much of a chance to be an entrepreneur. I was somebody who had spent her whole career working in large organizations. I'd worked in some of the biggest banks in the world. I was a senior executive that had never had to really struggle to raise money or I'd seen the hard times of entrepreneurship. So I was seen as being a very unlikely entrepreneur, but I knew very much inside me that I had the ability to, first of all, change, to respond. I also had the resources to take a risk. I find that people early in their career and later in their career can take bigger risks. And perhaps I wouldn't have taken this risk in my 30s or 40s, but mid-50s, I was prepared to do it. So I think from my perspective, people can change at different times in your life. Perhaps you have a different appetite to risk. So, yes, I was a very unlikely entrepreneur but I was up for it. I wanted to do it. And I took on the challenge of doing something awesome that never been done before. I decided to build a bank that was very different, that had all new technology, that was really technology focused. And the majority of people said it cannot be done. And the majority of people thought that a woman in her 50s couldn't do it especially one that had never been an entrepreneur and had spent her whole life in big jobs in corporates but I did it I very much hope that people can see that as an opportunity you can change you can embrace something different and there's a huge amount of opportunities out there if you really want to do it
2: and I think that's so encouraging for people to feel that and to remind ourselves that where we are today isn't where we always have to be. You know, on average now, we know that people have four or five different types of career during their working life, whether that's changing from working in big organisations to working for yourself, whether that's changing the sector or the kind of discipline that you're part of. But if people are listening now, so it's they're going to be January 2021, where a lot of people listen to this and they are thinking, this is the year that I might scratch that itch So lots of people do have an idea and, you know, and are really tempted to kind of start their own business, to do their own thing, whether that's one that gets investment or just one that they fund themselves. Do you have any questions or just thoughts that you would encourage people to ask themselves as part of that process of thinking, is this the right time? Is this the right year to make that happen?
0: Take a little step today. Lots of people come to me and ask me, I'm thinking of starting a business, I'm thinking about doing something. And I ask them, well, why didn't you start working on it last night? Don't wait, just do it. And if you can't sit down on that laptop and start working on it, if you can't reach out to people and say, I have an idea, perhaps you're not right for that particular idea or it's not the right time for you. So in the next hour, why don't you just start that business? Why don't you just write that email? Why don't you just reach out? It'll take you less time to start and to make the first step than think through the logic of what you're going to do next.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed and managed to stick with the slightly longer one today. If you get a moment to leave us a rating or review for the podcast, as always, that makes a massive difference to us and to what we're able to do and who we can share the podcast with. Next week, we have our final episode where you'll hear me talk to Kate Sevilla about how to work without losing your mind. Kate has worked in big companies like Google, and she's also worked in what she describes as scrappy startups like The Pool. Some of you might have been fans of The Pool or read The Pool. It was kind of an online magazine, I think is a good way to describe it. She was editor-in-chief there when, quite famously, everything kind of went quite pear-shaped. So it's a really interesting story. And she is very open about the stresses and, at times, ridiculous work situations that she's been in. And she also interviewed lots of people for the book as well, just to really think about how do we navigate our relationship with work in a way that is kind of positive and we avoid those really kind of stressful moments 2021 hasn't started in the way that many of us had anticipated certainly if you're listening from the UK we're kind of back in a lockdown and people will be managing things like childcare, etc so I suspect that this episode next week is going to feel even more relevant probably than when we recorded it back in December but that's all for this week thank you so much for listening and we'll speak to you again soon bye for now